From Noble Robot on East Hennepin Avenue in Assembled, Minneapolis, this is Nice Games Club, the show where nice game devs talk games and game development. I'm Ellen Burns-Johnson, and I make nice games. I'm Steve McGregor, and I make nice games. And I'm Arthur Croy, I too make nice games. For this week's episode, our topics are visual composition and minigames. And so, if everyone is ready, let's start. But first, we wait for the intro song. And we all dance a little bit. A little bit, yeah. Yeah. A little little bit of dance. We recorded an interview earlier today, and we had to tell our guest that that was going to happen. That they won't hear the theme song, but we will. Yes. And if you just see us dancing a little bit in total silence, that's why. Yes. (laughs) And it does happen every time we do the interview. It does. Uh Inside baseball for you. (laughs) Yeah, it probably looks really creepy to Zach. Uh, so it's been a couple of weeks now from where you're sitting, but for us, uh, Global Game Jam just wrapped up. It did. Uh, last weekend. Um, how'd it go, everybody? Whew. This whole weekend. Well, you were the only one who participated in it properly, Yeah, I guess. Oh, yeah. So when you said everyone. Well, no, we, you, Steve you, and I had, we were organized. You guys yes, were. We helped out. You guys it. were working well, really hard. I say I helped out with it. Mark like ran it. <laughs> yeah, we hosted it here at Noble Robot. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I guess I'll go first then. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, we, uh, I, t- we, I talked about this um, in a previous episode mm-hmm. um, that I was sort of like, I kind of ended up hosting it here at Noble Robot. Right. Um, and I wasn't exactly jumping uh, to do that, to put it together. So I was a little grumpy about the whole experience. And that was true during the weekend, too. I'm not going to say it wasn't. Mm-hmm. But it went really, really well. Yeah. Um, you know, we had some COVID requirements and everybody was was compliant and happy with that, even though most of the world has dropped all that stuff. They were happy to uh, do tests and, and show that to us on the way in. Um, everyone felt comfortable. Uh, they fit in the space, which was not a yeah. no, not a for certain thing. We had a, about thirty people uh, here um, in this eight hundred square foot office, mm-hmm. um, and everyone had a place to sit and room to move around. So it were that worked out. Yeah, um, we had um, p- uh, plus the online folks who participated um, on the Discord, which uh, which we had planned as a, a part of the whole organizing uh, group for this. Mm-hmm. Um, we had 40 people registered, cool. uh, maybe one or two more who didn't you know, f- register on the site, yeah. um, and 13 games, Woo, wow. uh, which is pretty games. good for what we thought as an organization, IGGA Twin Cities. We were like, okay, it'll, it'll be fine. We'll get it done, but you know, it might not be a banner year. Yeah. It was great. Um, it was really, really good. We had good participation, and you know, we didn't have a big, giant space. We couldn't be open 24 hours the whole time, um, but... It was good. Everyone really had a good time. They all like gave really positive feedback. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I'm very pleased. I'm still like, oh, I hope I don't have to do this next year. But also like, I was kind of proud of what we all, how we all put it together. So I might do it again next year. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it went really well. I mean, I partook of the hybrid features, right? So mm-hmm. I spent some of the weekend here and some of the weekend um, working from home. And, you know, I thought it was pretty seamless. I was... I was shocked by how much space it felt like we still had. Yeah. There were so many people here. And it, I mean, like, yeah, like you had to watch where you were going, but that's the case at, no matter what site you're in. Yeah. <laughs> because there's, it's, the chaos always expands to fill the space that you give it. Right. <laughs> um, and it, it felt really spacious. I mean, you, it wasn't just this office, right? Like, we, um, you had people like expanding into the conference room. And there were some people like in the elevator bay for a while. Actually, not. I mean, sort of. So the the this office space is 800 square feet, and about 200 of them are taken up here by the clubhouse. Mm-hmm. And so we had Ellen. Your team was here in the clubhouse, mm-hmm. um, and then we had other teams in the main office space, and then we had one more team in the conference room in the hallway. Yeah. So that was four people, um, and then the, that was the VR team. So they also used the elevator bay okay. for VR testing. Got it. Um, so I I was kind of ready for people to spill out into the hallway a little bit more, um, but. It, it was just that team and then they started there and ended there that didn't yeah again i was also shocked that mm-hmm. everyone and there was plenty of available space as well that was yeah. the thing cuz i had kind of planned like okay we'll we'll sell 30 tickets after that i can't promise that people will have a place to be right wow. and we almost sold out mm-hmm. and then um uh dale myself and you steven were not part of that calculation so that was three more bodies mm-hmm. um and then it was fine. <laughs> like people, mm-hmm. they gather around the various uh, surfaces. There were plenty of chairs. There was, and then people could change where they were sitting because there was plenty of open space always. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was kind of, I thought I had like calculated it exactly like this and no more. And I'm a little bit regretful that I went this high mm. and then it was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives me more confidence to do other events here um, in the future. Yeah. 
I feel a little bad. I'm not going to lie. Because yeah. I feel like you, Ellen, this was going to be your weekend to work on Godot. <laughs> and it didn't happen again. Yeah. And I, I was part of the cause. My, I was, I helped with the team. Oh, that's building. right. It was all your fault. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Uh, <laughs> I helped with team building this year. Uh, and I haven't done it in a while. I haven't done it since, uh, you know, the global game jams of yore. Um, but, uh, it was, it was, as, it was as hectic as it always is. Uh, I remember it and I, I bring it that energy. So like, that's part of the charm. <laughs> uh, but, uh, in, in my, in the, the haste of me getting teams together and stuff, uh, someone was looking for an artist and I was like, Oh, Ellen does art. Hey, Ellen. <laughs> yeah. So here I am. Um, I showed up and we did the, you know, kick off the theme reveal and I'm like, okay, well, I, I set aside this weekend to focus on Reminding myself how Godot works and yeah. making a little more progress on making things. Yeah, you're so, going to be on your own. You're, you're planning. Planning on being on my own. Maybe do it. You know, maybe working with some people to to do some you know different art. But I was planning on making games from the tutorial sequence that I will come back to eventually. <laughs> and uh, and you know maybe putting some twists on the mechanics um, just to push my knowledge of the engine a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and so here I am, like rereading things, like, oh yeah, I remember how this works. Scenes and scenes and scenes and nodes. I got this. And then comes Stephen. <laughs> Ellen, you do art, right? I'm like, well, kinda. <laughs> and then I ended up on a team. Uh-huh. Well, and then like about 30 minutes later, someone who actually does art showed up. Yeah. But by that point, I was invested in the idea. So yeah. I just suck it out for the rest of the weekend. It's a fun idea too. And you, mm -hmm. the team built it using Rust, an, an engine I'd never heard of. Yeah. So Rust is the language, right? Mm -hmm. And the engine um, Bevy, Bezel, Bevy? Bevy. Bevy? Yeah. There is a Bezel engine. Oh, I'll tell confusing. you about that later. <laughs> Bevy. Yeah. Look, Bevy. we're not great at names. <laughs> engine. But at any rate, y'all were using that. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes. Bevy, not Bezel. Oh, boy. It's. It's late. It's Bevy. Um, Bevy is the game engine built on Rust. And Carlo, our developer, is very experienced in it. Yeah. Um, and so we did. We had a good game by the end of the weekend. It was hilarious and disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the theme was Roots, and we took a gross take on that. Yep. But it was really fun. Yeah, we'll put the link in the show notes. That way, you don't have to value, uh, you know, elaborate any further. Yeah. yeah, you don't have to pollute your Google search history <laughs> at all. Uh, we'll link it for you. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, overall, a successful weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, I think we all had a good time. We all did very different things. Yeah, um, but it was good. I, I did end up finding time to do that. I think I mentioned this before. I was going to do a sprint on one of the mini games in mm -hmm. Dreamsteader, and I did, and I got a lot of done on that. I thought I would kind of wrap it up. I didn't get quite there, but I wasn't uh, really expecting to. Yeah. I suppose I was sort of rather I was half expecting to. Sure. So, um, but yeah, a lot of lot of progress on that. So I cool. felt really good about it, and I was you know kind of keeping the walls up and stuff. Um, right, right. But at a, after a certain point, it was it ran itself. Right. Yeah. It's all a lot of a lot of energy at the top and at the bottom. Yep. And then in the middle, it's everyone kind of knows what to do. Yep. Um, and Dale was a huge help. Yeah. Um, you know, we we stayed open from nine a.m. till three in the morning. And so I was here late, she was here early, and then we overlapped for most of the day. And so um, uh, that that felt like a pretty good time. People could stay late. Nobody stayed till three, which was great, actually. People did go home and, and sleep. That is good. Um, but people did stay past one. Uh, one sure. uh, I think on Friday till past two. Yeah. Um, so that was the right, I think, thing to say kind of, Everyone petered out and left when they wanted to leave. Yeah. yeah, and then no one would no one would dare show up before nine a.m. So <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a it was a structure that forced everybody to go home and sleep, which is something that people will talk themselves out of. Right. If you do have the space for the full forty eight, mm -hmm. um, so I think it worked out really well. Cool. And yeah, Dale was a huge part of making that work, so we could have that schedule, and I didn't have to get here by nine. Right. Yeah. Know. Yeah, because that would have been rough. And then yeah. you have to be there the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Enough about what happened last week. What's happening this week? is the premiere of Star Trek Picard Season 3. There it is. I'm so excited. Uh -huh. Listeners may have already, we have, by the time you listen to this, we'll have seen it already. Mm -hmm. And, oh man, the reviews are very, very good. I am super hype. <laughs> yeah, Mark is really hype. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, it's new Star Trek, so you can't stop me. But yeah. uh, the, I think the well, first two seasons of Picard were really mixed reviews. And a lot of people properly hated it. Mm. Um, and I'm like, it's new Star Trek, so it doesn't have to be great. And I, I liked what I liked about it, but it did have problems, right? It wasn't right. it wasn't the ideal thing. It tried a lot of new things and it wasn't successful in all of them. Yeah. Um, and this season, they're bringing back all the Next Generation cast, which is like a wow. nostalgia play. Yeah. But all the reviews are like, don't worry about that. It's not, it's not just the nostalgia play. Okay. It's, it actually is 
better apart yeah. from the fact that your old favorites are back. Yeah. And that was very validating because the thing I liked about the show was all the new characters. I really liked all the new characters. Mm-hmm. And they jettisoned most of them at the end of the second season um, so they could bring everybody back and they could all be main, main cast. And that I was like, nah, okay, I want to see Jordy again. But, <laughs> yes. I don't, but I really like these other characters. Yeah. Um, but all the reviews are like, you know, they, they aren't just like, yay, nostalgia. Yeah. They're, like, they're like, no, seriously. Like mm-hmm. they're like laboring to explain how good it is. And I'm, I'm, so I'm really, my expectations are very high. That's yeah. really exciting. Which is maybe not good. <laughs> Well, it just means you, you know, yeah. you love something. That's what that means. Well, man, Star Trek's been on a roll this past year. Yeah. Like the Strange New World premiered last year. The uh, Lower Decks has never been better. Mm-hmm. Prodigy is great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Discovery has been getting better every year, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, and uh, Ellen, you were saying you haven't uh, caught up on Picard season two. Apparently you don't have to. It's it's yeah. a new chapter, a new story. Um, you know, you know, there are things that are brought over from the first two seasons, but according to a lot of these reviews, it's not vital you watch it. So you don't have to catch up. Yeah, well, I think I might. And it actually, there's so much Star Trek that I do need to catch up on yeah. that it might be worth just subscribing. It's on, it's Paramount, right? Paramount Plus. Yeah. Paramount Plus. It might be worth dumping one of our other subscriptions that <laughs> rhymes with ticks and um, picking up Paramount plus yeah I, when that started as cbs all access people were like oh no i thought it was going to be on netflix or something but that just meant they wouldn't have to pay more for it yeah and at the time i was like i don't know i'll pay ten dollars a month for a new star trek yeah like yeah uh, you know i would prefer it at all i mean really this was the the future we all saw coming right uh that it's just it's just cable again yeah it's just cable again you know it it's, it's a la carte cable that i i remember people argued for that like a decade ago or mm-hmm. longer saying like why can't i ju- i don't want to uh, i don't want espn i just want the channels i want yeah and like the reason that cable is as cheap as it is which was not cheap mm. is because it's bundled like that you're not you know right uh, and once it all gets separated out the cost of each source of of thing would get higher right and that's what it is now people's yep. streaming budgets if you want everything are more than cable and cable has 500 channels so it yeah. is we're kind of it's kind of gone backwards yeah. um anyway this is a little bit of an aside but <laughs> there's more stuff on paramount plus now like ghosts which is a really fun show um, and there's a bunch of old stuff as well, and lots of movies. Yeah, so it's it's definitely yeah. worth the money. There's there's more stuff. Just like there are more games you can possibly than you can possibly play. Yeah, that's there's the thing. More it's, TV than you can possibly watch. Any single thing in this modern age is is like cheaper than the value you get out of it. But if you want more than one or two things, it does start to add up. Yeah, yeah, it does start to add up. But also just like I I always have to think about it in terms of like time budget. Yeah, that's how I try to think about it. It's like okay, I could do of these. I could do these five things. They are all amazing. Which is going to use this next hour best? Yeah, and some sometimes it's like, well, this would use my next hour best, but then Eric's like, oh my god, look at this scene! You have to watch this, and then I get sucked <laughs> into some show that I didn't intend to watch and yeah. don't intend to finish, but it was fun. Well, if you don't want to pay for Paramount Plus, you can just come to the office and <laughs> play all day. <laughs> yes, but I can't get caught up that way, right? I mean, coming on a Saturday. Oh, you said, oh, brilliant! Good I mean- job, Mark. High five. <laughs> <laughs> Teamwork. I mean, I can password share with the office I rent. I think that's allowed. That is allowed. It's so, allowed in any case. I don't care what anyone says. I agree with that. <laughs> yeah. yeah no, I mean, I, I mean, pay for Fries things you use, Netflix. but like, I'm not going to cry a tear for yeah. CBS International. You know? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, They're fine. <laughs> anyway, Star Trek is coming back. Hooray. I'm excited. There's been, there's been constant Star Trek for like 50 odd weeks. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Prodigy ended and there's been six weeks of no Star Trek. And it's amazing how used to it you get. <laughs> After going like a decade and a half with no new Star Trek, yeah, now, there being one every week for a whole year, being without it for a couple of weeks, it's like, I'm like, I can't, uh, when's new Star Trek? Mm. It's, it's sad actually. <laughs> <laughs> How quickly I got used to Mark needs his fix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, there's, I mean, but there's 800 odd episodes of Star Trek. Yeah, if they keep going, it's only going to be a couple more years before new Star Trek is as much as old Star Trek going back 50 years. Oh. Like they're making a lot of Star Trek. They are. It's kind of incredible. It's really, how are you going to down like upload it all into your head? Because there's like an encyclopedia of Star Trek. Yeah, it's actually really interesting because the thing about Star Trek is I've been watching it since I was a little kid. Yeah. And so you watch it over and over over in syndication and that's it's, it sits in your mind, right? It's not just that you'd seen it, it's that you've seen a lot of it. Yeah, but now you have like an old person brain. That's the thing. I couldn't tell you the names of all the episodes of season two of Discovery. Right. But I could read to you, I could rattle off in order probably every next generation episode yeah. it's more than that like there are when at this point now like if eric and i are talking about star trek and we have a question or something like that it has come up 
in this last week or two where Eric was like, have you ever done this in Star Trek? I'm oh, like, yeah. I'll ask Mark. And then I asked Mark and Mark was like, yes, in this specific episode. I'd do the exact same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So when we started watching Star Trek together and I started forcing all my friends to do that, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I was, I was like, okay, I hope I don't, I hope I don't like talk about it a lot. <laughs> Sorry. But then Steven would ask me a question and I'd be like, all right, you really want to know? And he's like, yeah. We'd pause it and for like eight minutes I would explain it. Yeah. And thankfully, no one's told me to to stop. I don't believe it either. I think you're all being very nice. No, no. Okay. I I mean, sometimes it's too much of an information dump. I'm not going to lie. But most of the time I'm like, yeah, this is interesting information. So like, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, Yeah, but he did have to take you to the chair for the first 50 episodes. And now I am a fan. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I was talking about Doctor Who a couple of weeks ago yeah. about how I rewatched that and how I didn't have it like Star Trek where right. I had seen it all, but it was a bunch of them I either forgot or only knew vaguely. Yeah. And that's just because you see something once, right? Right. A lot of the new Star Trek is like that. I think I will have to. I'm not a kid anymore. I don't have that time mm. to watch it over and over and over again. I only have time to watch it, say, over and over. <laughs> <laughs> And so yeah, I don't know if it will sit in the same, but you know what? 50 weeks of Star Trek a year, I'll take it. Even yeah. if, if it means I lose my, uh, you know, my accreditation uh, for knowing everything about Star Trek. <laughs> you're just going to run somebody out, like out in the street. You're just going to run into like the mini Mark who knows like all of it. That's, that's interesting. Oh. The people who like started with discovery, yeah. like th- their engagement with it. But at the same time, I mean, as an old franchise, it's, I don't know if kids are discovering it. The same way like I discovered Next Generation as a kid, because Discovery is not a show for kids, but there are now the prodigy. It's prodigy. Yeah, so prodigy. It's, I mean, it's, it is different. It's not, it's not just Ooh. that it's new. It's that it is a different era in a lot of ways. All right. right. I'll get to work on my nephews. Yeah. Start them on, product, you know. I feel like I, I haven't pushed Star Trek on my nephews yet. Wow. I, I feel like, <laughs> I know, I've been careful. Because <laughs> I, I still want to see that. I still want to see my nephews. I don't want my sister <laughs> to ban me from her household. Fair enough. But it's, I think it's about time. Yeah, all right. At the risk of uh, making this not uh, a Star Trek themed thing instead of, <laughs> maybe we should go into episodes or topics. Um, Buzzkill. <laughs> sorry. I was thinking Someone of, has to be it and I've been that the whole time. I was thinking of some kind of transition. Like one of the things that's always memorable about Star Trek is the composition. Ah. Okay, it wasn't very good. <laughs> All right, here we are. Right, My topic for the t- for today is uh, visual composition. So what do I mean by that? This is, I'm thinking a lot about how, just what the frame is like. And okay. so- so my discussion of composition is not going to be sort of a, a academic approach to it. Yeah. This is just my experience with it. So, okay. uh, you know, terms are relative. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, they may not be useful or used elsewhere. But basically, visual composition, the way I describe it, is it's about the relative placement of things to each other and to the frame. Oh. And that's the thing that I, I definitely uh, bring over, I think, that I think a lot of game developers don't have the same experience in that people who works in film right. or in or in, in, in visual art do, mm-hmm. which is about relative to the frame. Yeah. And that is really important about att- cap- capturing players' attention, yeah. guiding them visually yeah. to what you want to see. And a lot of that really relates to game mechanics. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I mean, it's it, I think it's not a secret or a surprise to most people that what it looks like will help you understand it. Yeah. But how you compose things, how you uh, 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 how things relate to each other on this on the on the frame, is really really important in a way that feels obvious to me but i see a lot of game developers and their works and i'm like oh i you know what if you just did that little thing this would make a lot more sense and it's a language a lot of developers don't understand yeah so so this thing you're describing is it like how there was a period of time when games became so realistic quote unquote um that like it was difficult to see what direction you're supposed to go because like everywhere looked like the path, if that makes sense, I, that's a consequence of okay. of 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 that um, of going for more realistic things. Yeah, is that the less abstract something is, mm-hmm. the less you can design for it. Sure, right. If you just have a realistic Unreal Engine three game, yeah. in the middle of two thousands, yeah, it, it, you would everything would kind of look the same, yeah, or it would look like a photograph. Right. And the thing is, is it could be it could be an interesting visual composition, but in the context of gameplay. It would be in, it would not be effective. Yes. Um, so I, I I think that you could attribute it to that sort of thing, but it's not a matter of like the more abstract, the better composed it will be. Yeah. It's just that you have to have the the relations of things to each other. Okay. So if things all look the same, then the relation they have to each other is is harder to parse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so um, I broke it down into a couple of categories. So the first thing is about 
contrast. Okay. So this is about the contrast between things of different sizes, different colors, and uh, you know, light and saturation. Mm-hmm. So you know, this is definitely true for a player character who's in the center of the screen. Yeah. You may think that's enough. <laughs> for right. you to understand where the character is. Mm-hmm. But think of like a bullet hell game or a racing game or something where a lot of things are moving and you need to dart your eyes around. Yeah. It just being in the center of the screen is not all you have to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, you want to give it a uh, – so sometimes, especially like a racing game, the the contrast you get is that your car is not moving and everything else is. Yeah. That's that's visual contrast, right? And so th- that alone can be useful. Okay. But in a lot, a lot of situations, it's not. If you've ever played a game where you are uh, uh, you know surrounded by enemies – and you look and you're like, this is correct. I wouldn't make, I wouldn't move things around differently, but yet I'm still losing my character. Yeah. And it feels like, well, how can I, well, I guess the only way to see where the character is is to move the enemies or change where the camera's pointed. Mm-hmm. But there actually is a lot of different tools you can use for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you'll see, you know, games will usually, uh, quote unquote, solve that problem with shaders. So yeah. you can like see through things that are blocking your view of the player. Oh. And that works. Yeah. But I feel like that's a little bit of a catch-all. There's okay. other things you can do mm-hmm. um, in terms of like how you uh, position a character, like how you scale the characters to, uh, and I'm thinking very generically because it's, yeah, really, well, I don't know what game I'm talking about, you know, yeah. when, I, when I say these things. But, you know, um, like you, you might want your character to be small and everything else to be big. And that means, well, wouldn't you lose your character? Well, not really because it's the only small thing. Yeah, and so it stands out, and and as you're looking f- at it, your attention is drawn to the thing that's small, and so that contrast can help you. Where you might think what you need to do actually is make it bigger mm-hmm. or make it as big as something else. Yeah, um, and that isn't always the case, oh, right? That's interesting. Mm-hmm. And so the uh, you also want to contrast with colors and saturation. So this is really good. Like Mirror's Edge is the key, yeah. is the key example of this, hmm. and especially with games when you don't when the player has control of the camera. When you compose against the frame, it's very difficult. But what Mirror's Edge does really well, and a lot of games do do this, but Mirror Edge is kind of an easy example to see, right. is that the fr- quote-unquote frame, mm-hmm. is gui- the player is guided for it. So when you walk down a hallway, there's kind of like the, you look down the hallway. So yeah. the, the developer has a general idea of what the camera is going to look at. And so you can, you can have you can sort of have an expectation of what the physical frame of the camera is going to be. Yeah. But also you can create artificial frames within the, the, the world space by, you know, uh, using architecture. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then you use those colored lines and panels to, to guide players. So you can have a very small patch of red that the player is going to notice. And it would be, it's very small, but it is at the end of a perspective line. Yeah. And you see that because the frame is guided by the ceiling and the floor yeah, okay. and the walls. And so th- those kinds of things can matter in in a, a medium where you have a lot less control over what the player is looking at and when. Right. Is you can create a world that doesn't necessarily, doesn't always force them into that, but provides an environment where they can find that. Yeah. Right? They can find those distinctions and those contrasts yeah. uh, through that composition. And that matters not just because this thing is red and everything else is black and white. That Again, that's often not enough. Mm-hmm. It's because it's, where it's placed in 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 relation to the 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 sort of like path of movement of the player, um, and where it's placed in 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 uh, the composition of the frame itself, yeah, um, that actually is going to matter. Is it going to feel out of place? Is it going to catch your attention, or is it going to be something that you just see out of the corner of your eye and don't notice? Mm-hmm. And so, a, it's a really hard thing to master. Yeah, and there's not a wrong way to do it, right? It's not something you could like measure exactly. It's Playtesting, yeah, what you got to do for a lot of that stuff. But contrast is really important about how you position things. Okay, yeah. Next major category is depth, yeah. and when I talk about depth, I don't mean 3D depth, right? Oh, okay. I'm talking about the depth of the two-dimensional frame. So think, um, yeah. So that- Stephen and I have the exact same expression. <laughs> so <laughs> like, it can be achieved in a couple of different ways. Okay. So. If it's a 3D game, yeah. then the depth can be achieved by the z-axis. Sure. Yeah. Right. But think about um, the HUD or a, a, the UI of a game. Mm-hmm. The best example I, I, I like to use for this is uh, Breath of the Wild because everybody knows it. But the thing about Breath of the Wild is it has very stark graphical UI that's all white. Oh. And so it floats above the frame. Yeah. It doesn't blend in with the, 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 the verdant world oh. of Hyrule. It feels artificial to it. Uh-huh. And so it, it sort of it, it, it feels like a, a, a layer on top of the television. Okay. That's depth, right? You're seeing the different layers of the of the screen. Oh, okay. Okay. I think and, I understand. And so I've seen, a, I mean, UI is a whole thing, right? Yes. But, um, I th- well, Metroid Prime Remastered just came out. Mm-hmm. And one of the things about <laughs> Metroid Prime is uh, 
all, a lot of the the HUD is diegetic. Right. It's yeah. it's Samus's helmet. Mm-hmm. But what's what it achieves that depth by giving the HUD the, the sort of the filters, right? And so it does still appear like it's coming off the screen compared to the environment. Yeah. Right. And but you do see a lot of UI that is like, well, this is the art style we've chosen for the game, so it should also apply to the HUD. Mm-hmm. That if you if that's the end of your thinking on that, you you've lost it mm-hmm. because it won't have that depth. It won't come off the screen. Okay. Um, it doesn't always mean coming off the screen. It could mean about a, a waypoint marker. Yeah. That you have as an overlay on the screen, but it's something that's far away. Yeah. You want to imply the depth you're looking for is like how does the player see it as a as a as a, a waypoint marker, even if the physical object it represents is 900 yards down the z-axis. Yeah. Um, but also, if you want UI components to be diegetic and be actually be physically have physical depth. How do you do that without having things get lost in the world? Right. And how do you do that without having them also just feel like they're pasted on the screen if that's not what you want? Yeah. So the, it's it's something you want to think about that isn't just about the the Z axis, right? Okay. So two D games are full of this. So if you think of like a Mario game, you know the reason that uh, the reason a lot of platformers have parallax uh, 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 backgrounds. Mm. Is not just because it looks cool. Yeah, <laughs> it's because it <laughs> separates it from the interactable layer. Yep. Because oh. if you think about, man, how many two D games have you seen with three layers of parallax mm. that take place in a in a castle, right? Whereas yeah. as you walk seven pixels, then the background moves thirty pixels, or you know whatever. Yeah. Or yeah. you walk thirty pixels, it moves like seven pixels. Right. That is not a realistic depiction of depth. Yeah. But that's not what they're going for. Yeah. Right. They're trying to lift that element off the screen and tell you that that's a wall back there. Mm-hmm. That's not a platform to jump on. Yeah. Okay. And it does that by exaggerating the physical depth to give you the actual experiential depth of the object. Right. Yeah. Okay. Right? Yeah. We did this in our game jam game. Yeah. Ah. With layers and layers of hair. <laughs> <laughs> that link is in the show notes, remember. <laughs> yep. But yeah, it's really about like what you can interact with versus it's about giving players context of what is what. Yeah, and that's a that's a compositional uh, uh, concept, right? Cool. Okay. So the last category is density. Mm-hmm. So this is just a simple matter of like there's a lot of things over here and a lot of things over there. It weights the screen, and uh, the best example of this, the simplest one, is in World One One of Mario mm-hmm. in 1983 or 85, depending on where you're from. Mm-hmm. When that game <laughs> came out, uh, run to the right. Was not a standard thing. Right. Right. Yeah. Most platformers were single screens, right? So how do you imply that the characters most move right? Well, you see Mario on the left and a big open void on the right. Yeah. How you've probably never seen a person who's never played video games. It's probably too late now because we're forty years on. Yeah. But you wouldn't see a person pick up the controller and go left. Yeah. As instinctually, mm. they know that forward is right, and of course that's a convention of game games now. Yeah. But the reason that that was built there is because there was that big open space. Now imagine starting, and you've probably seen levels like this, and now that it's a convention, it's not as important to do this, but if you start out a level and there's a, bu- there's a pile of stuff in a staircase on your right and you're on the left, think about, like you actually kind of want to see what's left. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Because you know what's right. Yeah. You can see it. Right. But what's yeah. left, you can't see. Right. So you want to you go look. But if yep. but the big void on the right mm-hmm. tells you that that's, that's where you will find something. Oh, sure. Yeah, these are the kinds of decisions you're making in a game all the time where you're like, oh, I want the extra stuff. Please don't make mm-hmm. me for- force me into a cutscene. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. It's like, here's the little nook, and then here's the door. And yeah. Well, I'm going to check out the nook for sure. Right. Because yeah. when, when you go backwards, you go there because you know it's wrong. Yeah. Right. You, you, you intuit not that it's, you intuit that it's the alternate path. Yes. Yeah. And so the composition works both ways, right? Okay, it, can, yeah. it can work to, to, to signpost the intended path and, and as a consequence. For you know those who know who know, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> want to turn around and see what's what's hidden on the other side. Yeah, right. Um, that's one thing of the first Metroid game is actually interesting because it starts you off in the middle of the screen. And yeah, isn't it like like both sides are equal? Yeah. So you go left and you get like a, I think you have to go left to pick up. You something. have to go left to get the morph ball. I think. Yeah, but it's I would say that's something that I would. I mean, it's, it depends on the developer intent. Yeah. It may be, in fact, it probably is intended to confuse you a little bit of where to go. But that would be one where, like, if you did change the composition of that opening screen a little bit, you could encourage the player to go one way, and either that's to get the morph ball or to go the other way to then then have to turn around later. Yeah. And lots of games, Metroidvanias, do this. They right. they signpost the path and give you hints to alternate paths. And they do that by putting the entrance at the edge of the screen in in a direction you're not going. Yeah. So you see it. It's it's out of the way, right? Yeah. It's that contrast again. But also the density lets you know that it, here's a small space in the corner and it's very dense with 
interesting visuals. Yeah. So that's probably an, a place I can go. Mm. And so that's how those things are combined. So the important thing is you put all this together and I'm not really talking about the camera. Mm, yeah. Hmm. Right? Which is when you think about visual composition, especially in like the world of film, that's kind of, that is the arbiter of uh, what your composition yeah, is. Yeah. And that's something when I started making games, I was really, that was the, th that's the thing I, that I've uh, changed most as a de game developer. Sure. Is, is really treating the visual composition very much like how I treated uh, the films and, and animations that I would do. And that was really important to me, but I had to learn slowly that like you can't really force that. Yeah. And so that's why I describe these things in terms of contrast, depth, density, yeah. and not where the camera is. Yeah. Because you could you could use that language to describe all these examples, mm -hmm. right? Like the the you know, the camera has a certain field of view, therefore it provides a sort of sense of physical depth, or the camera is to the right of Mario, and that's why it implies that we should go there. Yeah. But I think that's not ultimately the reason why you go right. Mm -hmm. Not because the camera is there, but because of the the void waiting for you to discover, right? Yeah. The, the hint of 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 of, of forward, yeah. Um, but the camera is important, but it is not the arbiter the way it is in film, right? Because the player controls it. Yeah, and yeah. you can you can you can impose some control over that, right? But you can't you do that too much, and then it's just playable cutscenes, yeah. right? Yeah, which is fine too. Mm -hmm. You know, if that's your game. Yeah. Um, again, all of this is like, what is your game, and then how do you use these? <laughs> how do you use these tools to 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 service what you want your players to see and react yeah. to? But it's cool to have like a, a guide around that, a guide around these different kinds of terms that might help um, yeah. people. It, it's not. I mean, these things seem useful for game design outside of just uh, outside of just artistic yeah. developments as well. Because like you know, uh, you were just describing how it is in Mario and things like that. You can help guide players towards things so that they can get extras or get information about how the game is supposed to work um through these th through this through visual composition yeah um that's cool and a lot of times when you do testing yeah you want to think about like look at the game and how players react to it and how you would react to it if you didn't know what to do next or where to go mm -hmm. and what also think about i mean you can't erase it from your memory what they but but pause your game in the middle of, a, of your own testing and just look at what the screen looks like and think mm -hmm. like what is this telling me if this were just a painting yeah what is it what is important right now independent of what says player and what has red eyes and so is obviously the enemy but just in terms of like you know this is a, a you know a horde coming over the hill so it's a really de it's a dense group of enemies in one corner so they are a threat mm -hmm. but the distance they are and the composition that they are just at the edge of the screen that tells me about that tells me about time yeah and you know all of those things if it were just a tableau what would it say yeah and if it says things that are not what your game is doing then that's when you got to start moving things around yeah I'm reminded of the new Horizon game, Horizon Forbidden Wild, Forbidden West, yep. one of those two. Um, and I remember watching, I haven't played the game, and I remember watching the trailer for it, or they like showed a bunch of gameplay or something. Mm -hmm. And the whole time I was thinking, oh, this whole, every single scene just looks like a screenshot. And it doesn't look like a game. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just looked like a whole bunch of like pictures yeah. put together instead of like feeling like, this was a, I don't know. It, it felt it felt it felt weird. It felt off when I was watching it. Flat? Yeah. Not flat. It, okay. It felt like full of life and stuff, but it just didn't feel like it didn't feel like a video game. I think it felt kind of like games I was talking about before, where like mm. um there were games that it, it just seemed like there was a bunch of stuff and it was unclear where you're supposed to go. And like it was a guided tour of the game, I guess. Yeah. So like they the developers knew where to go, so they would just go in directions. But I will say I've I've watched Dale play both of those games, yeah. and the one thing that that I struggle with watching it is as someone who's not played it, yeah. but has seen all those same trailers and screenshots mm -hmm. is that very often every like encounter with enemies yeah. tends to just be, a, it does feel like you're just fighting them all in the park. Yeah. Like it doesn't, there's no, I can't ever get a sense of where they're coming from Yeah, because the game mechanics really, um, um, it, the, the gameplay re requires you to have to turn around and they and they are the enemies do come from everywhere yeah but then it makes it sort of hard yeah if you just pause the game to know what's happening yeah so i would i would say i mean i'm not saying it's a huge failure on this this score yeah but it does lead to not knowing what's going on yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know and uh, i think in context it's difficult for people who are just watching the game to understand yeah. what's going on versus someone playing it and narratively the way that yeah. game is is that you are smaller than all the enemies yeah and so um, but at the same time, there will be scenes where you'll be fighting seven of them. Yeah. And so it kind of end up, it is a little confusing in that sense. Mm -hmm. um, the, the sort of threat they pose is not 
told visually, yeah. if that makes sense. Because mm-hmm. you can you can kill all seven of them because that's a video game. Of course, you should be able to. Mm-hmm. But then if you were to imagine that scenario as it's depicted visually, you'd be like, I need to find a hole and hide in it. Yeah. Right? <laughs> like that, 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 that's, that the, you pause it and how, without knowing anything about the game, what is your impression of, of that? That would be it. And so it kind of makes, kind of takes you out of it in a, in a certain way. Yeah. So I'm currently playing uh, Hellblade, Senwa's Sacrifice, yeah. mm-hmm. which has been on my list for a while and mm-hmm. never really felt up to playing it, but I'm really glad that I started it because I am enjoying it. <laughs> um, probably sounds like probably the ravest review of that game. Well, it's like, it's a, it's an emotionally challenging yeah. game, yeah. right? Like the main You're character. not supposed to have a lot of fun. No, it's not really about fun. Yeah. It's about persistence. It has some themes in there that really reminded me of Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. Um, there was this great quote in there. I'm trying to find it. I sexed it to Eric and it is right above okay you cannot overcome suffering if you refuse to look at it and the game makes you look at it yeah. so like any of these if I, I'm going to try it when I pick up the game whenever I next play it mm-hmm. later this week and I'm going to try it I'm just going to pause the game and basically every scene is going to be like why are you here you should not be here Yeah. and that's what the voices are telling you yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> So that's a game too that does take the camera control away from you and has a lot of like authorial moments, right? It it does, but also um in points it really it it requires you to control the camera. Like yeah. there are perspective puzzles and things that you oh, need to okay. find in the world. Interesting. Using things like contrast and depth and yeah, density yeah. in the environment around you to get the right the right, you know framing of certain things yeah. in order to advance that is a really effective way to to give the player the control but still guide to the result you're looking for is to actually make them have to look at something to progress yeah well yeah. and it, it's really thematic right because like yeah, you have yeah. to choose to keep looking mm-hmm. um so i want to try that it's a very beautiful there are some really nice woods in that game yeah <laughs> there are also piles of corpses <laughs> ah. so yeah yeah. <laughs> well, I think my final thought on this is it actually calls back to something we talked about with uh, Zach Barth last week, which yeah. is that um, games can have depth and complexity without uh, uh, without, without needing mechanical depth. Yeah. They can get them from lots of sources. Yeah. And one of those things is your visual composition. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think like, oh, this game isn't feeling quite right, like maybe the solution isn't to make the, um, the uh, attacks more uh, robust, right? The attack system or something like that. Maybe the solution is just changing the where you know how things look a little bit yeah um, you'd be surprised how much of i mean a perspective shift it's sort of a metaphor almost but literally like how, mm-hmm. how that could actually change how a game how you experience a game it goes back to what we've talked on the show a lot about which is just the holistic nature of this medium yeah yeah for sure that's cool uh so i was talking to mark about mastodon earlier and i was trying to explain it yes and i understood yes (laughs) i understood mm, 20 percent of what you're saying um but i think i would feel a little bit more comfortable if i knew someone something i could follow and thankfully i do uh (laughs) did you hear that that was genius that was really good well done steven (laughs) i was panicking (laughs) while we were talking anyway uh um nice games club is on mastodon as well as twitter and, you know, Dale is amazing and tweets about a bunch of stuff. And all of the tweets are also toots on Mastodon. Um, so if you're looking for someone to follow, if you're interested in Mastodon, want to learn more about it, but like want something to feel familiar and comfortable so that you can feel like, I don't know, you can feel a little bit better about uh, ma- navigating new social media things that are always strange and scary. Um, you can go and follow Nice Games Club on Mastodon. Yep, it's at Nice Games Club yes. at PeopleMaking.Games. PeopleMaking.Games is the server mm-hmm. the Nice Games Club is on, and our handle is Nice Games Club. Yeah. And what's nice about it is, um, yeah, if you're if you're transitioning away from Twitter mm-hmm. or you're just trying out Mastodon as a new thing, yeah, um, you can follow us there, and you won't be missing anything. If you're if you decide to stop following us on Twitter, but don't do that either, because <laughs> it's the same stuff. We, yeah. we 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 post the same things. We're trying to keep because a lot of people are they got their feet in both worlds right now. Mm-hmm. So we're waiting to see what happens. But we figured we might as well offer that. And the game dev community on Mastodon is great. Yeah. So I would suggest not only following us, but you know actually engaging because people are uh, there exclusively, and there, people are there as well as on Twitter and other places. And it's great. It's just a good new place to build community and this sort of fresh start. 
which is necessitated by world events, mm-hmm. uh, has been uh, a boon for a lot of people. They've been really engaging with it and using it and sharing a lot of really cool stuff. Yeah. So check us out. All right, guys. What's a minigame? We're here to answer that question? You know, I... <laughs> I want to talk about mini games. Okay. Yeah. But the reason I want to talk about mini games is because it's a it's a squidgy word that's a little bit amoeba shaped and we can like shove it into whatever, you know, linguistic cranny we want to use it. Like we can use it to refer to games that are smaller games within a larger game. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, you know, the fishing mini game. Yeah. Um or lock picking in Skyrim. Is one that I've seen referenced a lot, although they've also really? seen it referenced as it being very integrated into the game. So who knows? Okay, yeah. Because um, like, yeah, at some point, is it just a, is it a mini game or is it just a mechanic? Right. Yeah. Uh, right. That's the sticky thing, right? So is it a small game within a larger game that's separate from the main gameplay? Is it a can it still be a mini game if it's a small game mechanic in the larger game? Is it a small standalone game? Is that a mini game? Like if you go on itch and you play lots of small games, are they mini games? Mm-hmm. Is it a collection of small games? Like, you know, the games that shift with the playdate? Um, yeah. Is it, can you use the word mini game to refer to like the small games that together make up a larger game? Mm-hmm. Right. Mini game is often used in terms of a collection when really it's just a collection of games. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, I think the answer really to the question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's I mean it's it's hard to say any of those things are not mini games in in search of a better definition of the word mini game. It's hard to say it but I can try. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I so the way I like to the way I think of a mini game is a game within a game, right? So like, you know, any any game in Mario Party, right? The little mini games that you do to get 10 coins if you win or whatever. Yeah. Those are all mini games. They're literally defined as mini games. Yeah. yeah. The box says 60 mini games here or whatever. Yeah. Um but like I wouldn't define uh lock picking in Skyrim as a mini game. I would define that as a puzzle you mm-hmm. have to solve to get to stuff. But like just because you're doing a puzzle doesn't make it a mini game. Yeah. You do a Sudoku all of a sudden to to solve a puzzle or whatever so you can get a thing. I don't know that that necessarily means that Sudoku is a mini game, but isn't that exactly the description of a mini game in Mario Party? <laughs> yeah, see, that's the thing. <laughs> okay, know. first off, Mario Party is not the just because they use the word doesn't mean they're def- the definition of of, my, of mini. Stepping game. back from it now, <laughs> look, I don't have a full definition. <laughs> I know Ellen just approached me with this that's topic the, all of uh, a sudden. This is this you are running right into the the, the discomfort I had and with we can't, this word. As, we can't, soon, as, you, as soon as you try to build four walls, the first wall you put up. Suddenly, you you have all these counterexamples. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and we can't just be like everything's a mini game because that's a five minute long uh, uh, topic and that's boring. So <laughs> right, I, that's I mean, anarchy. Somebody, and somebody has to go against the. the somebody crazy. has to have opinions. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it is that you know, like we've described all these uh, these different places where the word mini game has been applied. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if anyone's. I hope someone comes out on Discord or Twitter and fights us on this because I yeah. want more definition. I want there to be walls. Um, I think the thing with this topic is that there isn't a lot of opinions going around. Yeah. I think, Why not? I think well, that, so I, I share that need. Like, it's like, I, oh, I could probably form an opinion, but I wouldn't feel very strongly about well, it. Well, and ultimately, it kind of doesn't matter whether or not you define a mini game as a mini game or not, right? As long as the player understands what you're doing. Yeah. It kind of doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, you don't get any bit, like, Mario Party specifically benefits from defining what a mini game is because that is part of how the game is played. Yeah. You play the regular board game and then. In between turns of the board game, you play these mini games to get advantages. Right. right? And it's also why WarioWare calls them micro games. Yeah. Because the operative word is mini, or in the case of Wario, uh, micro. Yeah. It's not really about its place within the game. It's about like how much it asks asks of you as the player. Yeah. Which is if you're playing a really dense RPG, then maybe a Sudoku is a mini game. Mm -hmm. But if you're playing Mario Party, then a game where you just have to hit A a bunch of times, that's mini. Yeah. And so. 
that that's maybe that's where I'd fall on it is like it's it's contextual. Yeah. But the mini is the important part. Yeah. The definition of the term has to have some purpose. Otherwise, what's the point? Right. Right. Yeah. So that's I guess that's what I'm like. You can't say everything is a mini game because then it's not then it's just a game. That's not a definition. Yeah. It's not an important definition. Right. OK. Um. So that's what that specifically is what I'm fighting up against. I think that makes sense then. Right. Because okay. so. Because smaller game just doesn't really make sense, (laughs) right? But that's really what it means is like compared to our frame of reference, it's smaller than that. Yeah. (laughs) And to a certain extent, it is kind of its own little universe. So this is where I think the Mario Party one fails a little bit. Okay. Because the thing about Mario Party is it's a game where you you roll the die and then you do tasks. Yes. And that's what they are. Yeah. Um, And they, they contribute, your success in those contributes directly to your success in the game. Yeah. In the overall game. Mm-hmm. Where, which isn't, isn't untrue elsewhere, but it's less true elsewhere, yeah. I think. Mini games are often optional or you play them for bonuses rather than progression. Yeah. Right. Um, and again, it's all it's totally contextual. Right. Um, and I wouldn't call the games in Mario Party anything else. Yeah. Because they, that's the thing that makes most sense just as a layperson. Mm-hmm. Um, but in in the larger universe of these things, I think that would be early on the chopping block for me. Even though it wouldn't make a lot of sense to people if you stop calling them mini games. Yeah. Yeah. Right? That's the thing. It does it does make sense when you call them mini games. But the way that it's, you know, the relationship between the mini games and Mario Party and the, the whole, you know, game of Mar- Mario Party is different than, you know, the fishing mini game in The Legend of Zelda. Yeah. <laughs> or like catching your bugs. Yeah. You know? And that, mini games also tend to have like, like if you like Mario Party, you yeah. like the mini games. Yeah. That's what liking Mario Party means. Right. Well, some people just like the party game, and I don't understand those people, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but if you like the mini game in The Last Kirby, yeah. I mean, you're a crazy person, one. But also, it's that's irrelevant to your, your opinion of the game. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it contribute to your final score, perhaps. Right. But it's not, it's not required of you. Yeah. There's a whole subsection of gamers who appreciate fishing mini games in games, yeah. but do not like fishing games. Um. And I don't understand that exactly, but I think part of that is because fishing mini games are simpler than fishing games. Right. When I worked yeah. at uh, when I worked at Concrete, I play tested a, uh, a fishing game. One of them Rapalas. Yeah. yeah, and it was you know much more complicated than you would get in a, in a Zelda game or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I think that part of the appeal of like fishing mini games, it's it's an action that people are familiar with, and it, they tend to be approached a little bit differently in each different game. Um. And so, like, when you're playing this mini game, it's something that you can get good at and you can just do it over and over again. And I think that's part of the appeal yeah. of these things, mm-hmm. well, of it, mini games in general, really. I think a, a proper fishing game is more like fishing. Yeah. So that's where, that's where the problem starts. Right. right. Also, I think the, the amount of interest you have in an activity that is fishing mm. expands to fill the space that a mini game has. Yeah. And it, it will not expand further than that. Mm-hmm. It's probably, it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. That, that there would be fans of fishing mini games who also don't like fishing games. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably true of a lot of different types of games, like the, um, you know, the little um, uh, like uh, Bioshock uh, um, uh, pipe game. Oh yeah, you know, like I wouldn't want to play a whole sixty dollars experience of that, no matter how interesting yeah. they thought they could make it. Yeah, but I, you know, thirty seconds in between levels, I'm there. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, there's the whole Gwent and whatever in The Witcher, right? That's a yeah, that's a mini game. Well, or is I mean, it a game it, within a game. I, yeah, I mean that there is uh, things outgrow, right? It, yeah. it becomes interesting enough on its own. Right. People will like boot up The Witcher just to play Gwent for hours. Yeah. yeah. And then of course there is the standalone Gwent game, which is bigger and you yeah, know, and deservedly so. It's an mm-hmm. interesting game of its own. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah, there the boundaries are fluid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think so. The the thing that clicked for me just having this last few minutes of conversation is that the mini is just in comparison to whatever the frame of reference is, mm-hmm. right? So like if you put something up on itch and you call it a mini game, well, it's what that means is that it's smaller. It's still like self-contained, but it's smaller than the stuff that you get on itch. Yeah. Um if you're, you know, getting the play date and you're booting up the mini games, well, what it's communicating to you is that there are also games that you can get for the play date that are bigger than those. Yeah. <laughs> right? And that's mm-hmm. that's kind of cool. We're starting like for setting someone up as a player on that new platform um, to set them up with mini games. Cause what they're basically saying is here's where our expectation is for mini. That means that full on standalone games are going to be bigger. Right. Um, That's a relative context too. So yeah. like think about a game like space invaders, 
and then think about that as in an arcade, as a cabinet with Space Invaders, that's a game. Yep. But then also think about uh, like an Atari collection on the GameCube or something where there's like yeah. 30 games. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Those are also games. Right. Mm-hmm. Even though if they were made anew in like, you know, uh, arcade experience 2004 mm. or something and had the same type of gameplay, yeah. you'd call, probably call them mini games. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because all the, the context is relative to a lot of things. Yeah. Um, including like historical context. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, when you were describing that, it reminded me of um, The Dig made by LucasArts. Mm-hmm. Um, one of those great point and click adventure games. I got quick aside i love that game when i first started playing it and i got so stuck i got so stuck in a point and click game that sounds weird you're right no one ever does that (laughs) no one (laughs) well and then years passed and i forgot about it until i remembered and i'm like oh i bet you just bolted out of bed once and you're like well that was it (laughs) the red square (laughs) i can i can probably get it on an emulator or something like oh yeah i have i remember this game i gotta figure it out yeah and i did i got unstuck <laughs> nice. I didn't walk far enough to the left. Ah. I'm gonna blame the composition. Uh, yeah, I was just gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it had so it had this <laughs> this great little tool in the game for your character to use to like make notes and stuff. I don't mm, really sure. remember exactly what it was. It was called a pen ultimate, and it was like a Palm Pilot. <laughs> oh, nice. It was nice. amazing, and um, it had this little asteroid like Moonlander game. So you were like a lunar lander, and you'd like puff, 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 puff down. Yeah, it just like black and white. This game was really rich in color. Um, I thought, you know, it was a great world, but the the Lunar Lander game on the penultimate was just like black and white. Yeah. yeah. Right? Because um, <laughs> the days of the Palm Pilot, you didn't have colors on the screen. Right. Um, so you just like poof the, moon, the Lunar Lander down. You have to be really gentle with it and you get it and it would be really cool. And the purpose that that mini game served was to give you a break from the main game. Right. Which I don't think we've touched on yet. Like sometimes it can be like a fun diversion and it's like a fun thing to do. Um, like I don't know if you'd call this a mini game, but like racing the horses around the um the jumping track in Breath of the Wild. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a mini game or not, but like I guess I would qualify it as I one. I would say so, yeah. Yeah, because you just kinda get it for you get bonus stuff for it. You don't Yeah, right. Um, and but, games like that, they tend to be like You've entered town, and there are nearby activities. Yeah, that's how they're narratively presented. Yeah, but like, but they are for the, for the reason you described. They're meant to provide you a little break where you can get off the track and just goof around a little bit. Yeah, mm-hmm. but also still do some things that rewards you in the game. Yeah, yeah, but but psychologically, it's just goofing around. Yeah, yeah, and I want to come back to the the um the horse game for a second because something else clicked for me. But the the lunar lander was really interesting. Clearly, a mini game. There are Lunar Lander games that are standalone games that you can go get. Yeah. Right. But mini game because it was in the context of this huge point and click adventure game. Yeah. Um, it was just played in a really interesting role. Um, so just to twist this a little bit for a couple of minutes, we can go down this side path. Okay. Okay. Yes, the horse game where you're jumping over the fences with a horse. Mm-hmm. You are jumping over the fences with a horse, mm-hmm. and you are getting better at doing that. And you, if you do it really well. You get some bonuses, mm-hmm. but the thing is, by practicing that mini game, you're also getting better at like the overall game, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right, because you're using the mechanic of the, yeah, right. I guess I'd still call it a mini game. I yeah, I would too. But that is an interesting example. Yeah, that's that is it's sort of a, a uncommon balance where you can kind of uh, the two birds and one stone kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there were uh, bringing back Horizon again. I played it a little bit, the first one, anyways, yeah. a little bit. Uh, and you, I got to a point where like there was this trainer person, and they were like, "You can uh, fight these monsters and get some points if you do it well enough, or whatever." And like, really, it was it was both it was both to teach you how to fight better, and also you know it was a thing you could get records on or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of a lot of like larger games do that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, training games. Yeah. Right. Uh, 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 practice battles or uh, target ranges, yeah. first-person shooters. Yeah. But I think the horse game is actually a little different than that. Oh, know? yeah? Because it, it feels like its own experience. Yeah. Because you never you never really jump fences as a as a demand of gameplay. That's true. In the game, but it does it does teach you how to na- use that mode of transportation. Yeah, much better. In a way that like a, a shooting range does in a first-person shooter. Yeah, exactly. Like you walk up to a shooting range and you know there's going to be a mini game around it. But really, the purpose of that mini game is to teach you how to play. Yeah. Um, something I, I wish I sometimes I could have in Sunless Sacrifice because 
<laughs> you want to practice looking at it. <laughs> there is some sword. Sw- there's some sword swinging. Yeah, but you just get thrown in there. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. Anyway, okay. <laughs> um, where was I going with this? Well, I know Stephen, you were about to say something. I think yeah. I cut you off. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, I you, what you what you said is basically what I was going to say. Oh, okay. I think that like yeah, those are aspects of it, and I think you're right in that the uh, the context of Breath of the Wild's uh, horse jumping over gates thing is different because you don't jump over gates normally. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think sometimes games will like condense an aspect of a, of a game into you know, a small portion that like players can use and practice and get better at and like get records on. So partly because like they can practice here on, on this kind of thing mm-hmm. in a safe environment. And also so that like, you know, they get rewarded for getting better at the game in a way, in a context that is different from just playing the game yeah. and getting better through it that way. Yeah. Like there aren't, now that I'm thinking about it and I haven't played much of Dark Souls and stuff, but I don't think there are many games in Dark Souls or Elden Ring and things like that, right? They're just like the game, and I, the, in that game's whole, both all those games' whole things are you're supposed to uh, smack your head against the wall multiple times until you break the wall, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it makes sense that there's not really a break in that way mm-hmm. in those games. I guess the break is like the the cutscenes and the mm-hmm. in some of the narrative portions and things, but like that's yeah. not the same kind of thing. They're they're giving the player some moments of like repose, I guess. Yeah, they're just not using mini games to do it, and right, I do yeah. think part of you know, I don't know if they made this decision consciously, but like part of the the reason it makes sense that they aren't using mini games to do that is because of what you said. Yeah. Like the the struggle through the main gameplay is the story. Yeah. That totally makes sense. So we talked about like some instances where people have used or you know, designers, developers have used games, mini games well mm-hmm. and some places where it doesn't fit. So I guess can we generalize that? Like when are mini games a good idea? Never. Just kidding. Yeah. I, I th- well, never is the right answer sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, in Dark Souls, it never might be the right answer, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But also it could be used to sort of really contrast the experience. Yeah. It could be a, it could be used as a tool for irony. Yeah. Um, okay. But it, it's all contextual, right? It's like, what what is your game? Yeah. And where do those mini games live in the world of your game? Not just the narrative, but the... The user experience. Yeah, right? I I do tend to take a black and white approach to a lot of game mechanics, which is very, uh, is ironic because I basically I'm like, there's no such thing as bad game design as long as it works for the game, which mm-hmm. isn't fully accurate all the time. But um, well, as a designer, you have to have those strong opinions. Yeah, you have to have strong opinions. Yeah. Yes, that is very true. Um, but yeah, I tend to dislike like random asides and new mechanics in games that are only introduced just to like keep the player away from playing the main game yeah um because i'm like i want to play the main game i didn't sign up to uh <laughs> uh f- learn how cards work or whatever um so it feels that always felt weird to me to see that in other mm-hmm. games but i mean people like get really attached to these other separate games yeah and i think it is a nice break sometimes you can like try this thing out for 15 minutes and go oh this isn't for me and then go back into the game i suppose right. but it feels like it takes a lot of the the way I'm imagining it is it uh, having not worked on a large game that has a ton of mini games. I imagine it takes away from some development time, you know, to implement these mini games and stuff. And maybe it doesn't. Maybe these are just aside things that they were taking. The developers were taking a break on doing to develop because they were like, "Oh, I'm so sick of RPG mechanics. I want to know how does it. How, let's make a card game." Um, you know, I'll tell you that's what we're doing in Dream Settler. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, it's, yeah, we recall the mini games, mm-hmm. but they're probably not. They are full games <laughs> uh, that we're making for our operating system, yeah. but they are required for narrative purposes. Okay. Right? We need to fill the world with content mm-hmm. and uh, the mini games are one way to do that. Yeah. Um, but uh, we have definitely, all three of us have done that where we've like, okay, I'm working on this system. I reached a good stopping point. This yeah. checkpoint. Yeah. Uh, I'm going to work on this mini game for a while. <laughs> nice. <laughs> because part of it is that the, and this is true of a lot of mini games. Yeah. What the mini games are is not, I don't want to say it's not important sure. because once they're made, then they become important. Yeah. But it, it, it if they're nothing yet, yeah. what you make of it isn't always that relevant. Sure. Right? Like uh, a lot of the, you know, like the the pipe unlock mini game in Bioshock. Yeah. And it, even in the sequel, it used a different mechanic, a yeah. different mini game. Yeah. And they still presented it as you were doing the same thing. Yeah. That's fine. Right. Yeah. Um, but also in the case of what we're using our games for to fill out the world, that we have. Th- 5,000 choices to make as to what the however many games we're going to have are going to be. Mm-hmm. So it's somewhat arbitrary what we choose. It will shape things for certain, but 
that that's what makes it a nice break for us as developers. Yeah. yeah. Is that we get to sort of like enter a little sub world for a little while mm. and then then we you know we have to relate it to the larger world of course but it is taking a break from everything else yeah. in the same way um and that is that is really interesting i never really thought of it like that <laughs> but we definitely do do it on, on that on yeah that and and i think it's probably how some of these community games are developed in in triple spaces as well yeah that's true that's well sometimes true. you can tell that they're like they they don't connect them back in yeah right like you know it works for us it's built into the structure of our narrative that these have to exist yeah so we've designed a system where it, it benefits the game to take these breaks for in right. fact but that isn't true you sometimes i mean what grand theft auto has all these mini games right and they always seem undercooked and random and they don't they don't they end up making the world feel smaller sometimes yeah. um i mean not always some of them are successful but yeah. they do feel a little bit like um just other additional things you can do. Yeah, yeah, and it does. It does feel like it was just leftover development time rather than considered. Yeah, like whole yeah. world building. The one that I always think of is in Watch Dogs. You can just like play chess, and it's like, why? And Assassin's Creed Three, you can play chess. Why? <laughs> well, chess is cool, but okay, but I the, agree. There why? are chess games. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to play chess. I don't go to Watch Dogs. So I can play chess. Every chess mini game that's just chess. Yeah. is so annoying because it's like all these like AAA assets. Yeah, and so you can and you can for some reason you can they always have different camera controls uh-huh. in the games. Yeah, and they're never they're never good as yeah. good as a proper chess game. <laughs> I'm thinking of the Assassin's Creed Three one in particular. Yeah, or maybe it was Assassin's Creed Four, but where you just play chess and you're like, I want to, I can't quite see. Yeah, <laughs> the board. Uh yeah, it's it's weird. So I I mean if you're gonna add uh, mini games into your game like can I don't know I guess consider it as a piece of the whole right you can't just I guess you can just put in mini games in there and they might not necessarily have yeah. anything but like they can be your game can be stronger for it if you consider how it fits in even if you like made this game on the on the side because you just wanted a break and you whatever you made a whole new separate thing mm-hmm. you can like add that into the world and make it interesting and make it a part of the whole experience mm-hmm. in a way that will make it satisfying for the player. And I think I think what they all have in common, mm-hmm. even back to Mario Party, yeah, is that they are about the pacing of your experience. Yes. So a Mario Party, the mini games are about pacing your time between die rolls, mm-hmm. between turns. Mm-hmm. The games feel they are content in that sense. That's kind of maybe why I might say that they're just part of the game. Sure, yeah. But on their own, they are these little universes. So yeah. they're mini games, fair yeah. enough. Um, but I think also in Finjins, yeah. when you there's the corrupted sectors. Yeah. And the way you get into them is by shooting a little optional object and then you play a little optional mode. Mm-hmm. But all the mechanics are identical. Yeah. So you wouldn't call that a minigame, right. but it's the same thing. Yeah. Right? That's true. It's a, it's about it paces the level. Hmm. And yeah. so I think that's what a lot of minigames and other things do. It's like you it's time to take a break because you you what are you gonna do while you're here? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because a lot of times in games you you're not ready to take a break from playing the game. Yeah. You're ready to take a break from the main mechanics of the game yeah so well i've got something to do here right right and so i think it is all about pacing that's that's yeah. my that's my uh thesis on it i finally figured out <laughs> yeah you're pacing the experience of a larger game or you're pacing the experience of games within the flow of your life yeah your day whatever <laughs> why are you laughing i don't know it just sounds sounds really big that idea <laughs> i mean you pick up you pick up the play date, you play a little mini game, uh-huh. you put it down. What do you go back to? I guess just your boring life, I suppose. I... Yeah, yeah, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> That's our show. For show notes and links on today's topics, go to our website, nicegames.club. Visit us on Twitter and Mastodon at Nice Games Club, where Dale tweets and toots about game dev resources and James Bond holding a giant crayon. Uh, I'm never going to unsee it now. (laughs) (laughs) We like hearing from you, so tweet and toot back. Or email us, contact at nicegames.club. Nice Games Club is on Patreon. Support the show and get stuff, including ad-free episodes. Sign up at patreon.com slash nicegamesclub. If you want to keep things more casual, just stop by nicegames.club slash discord and say hello. So, until we start again, remember to play nice and make nice. All right, Stephen, can you bring more of that magic and transition us into the next uh, one? I got one.
One per episode. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you don't have one now. You had one and you spent it. That was it. Yeah. Got it. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I'm going to take a drink of water then so we can cut this section. <laughs> okay. Oh, we're taking a, a sip of something break? Oh, yep. cool. Cool. Okay. I don't have anything. This isn't fair. <laughs> I just choked on my <laughs> You okay? Yeah. I was trying to like make a noise for the microphone. <laughs> it didn't work. Oh, no. <laughs> well, you did. It just wasn't the one you intended. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.